0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches, as we've been studying, that you can't ever lose your salvation. Once you put your faith in Christ, you are saved eternally. But when we sin, it breaches our fellowship with God. And all the Scripture says that is necessary to be restored to fellowship is to simply confess sin, which means to admit or to acknowledge to God in silent prayer uh, the sins we've committed, and God instantly forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all other unrighteousness. We're restored to fellowship, uh, recover the filling of the Spirit so that we can continue in our spiritual growth. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that we can come together as a body of believers in freedom to study your word. We continue to pray for our nation. We pray for the leaders of our nation, for our president. We pray for those in Congress. We pray for those who are sitting on judicial benches. We pray that you would guide and direct them. We pray that there would be a uh, understanding of the fact that a nation must run on absolute principles and that there's going to be genuine freedom. There must be a an absolute standard by which everyone operates. Father, we pray for this evening as we study your word that we as believers might submit ourselves to the authority of your word, recognizing that in your word you have revealed yourself to us, you have informed us of the nature of the creation, the nature of reality, the nature of who we are, and all that you have done and provided for us. And Father, as we study these things, we pray that we can concentrate and focus this evening, put aside the distractions and cares of the day and coming weekend, and focus on your word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're in a series on Hebrews, but we won't spend much time in Hebrews to begin with, so don't bother turning there yet. In fact, if you want to turn somewhere, go ahead and turn in your Bible to uh, Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 1.13. We started this sort of minor digression here about two weeks ago in Hebrews 7.25, where We're in the middle of one of the uh, most significant passages on the present ministry of Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 7 begins to introduce us to his current ministry, which is referred to as his high priestly ministry. Jesus is in session. Uh, That's a term that theologians developed to describe the fact that he is seated currently at the right hand of God the Father based on the Latin word sesiona meaning to be seated and he is not on the throne of David right now he's not reigning from heaven he is not in a position of authority other than he is the high priest who is uh, interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father and so chapter 7 goes through a lengthy uh, analysis of his priesthood. It's not based on the Levitical priesthood, which is based on genetics. It's a Jewish priesthood that was based on the Mosaic Law, and God set aside one tribe of the twelve tribes of Israel that would be the tribe of the priesthood, and that was a Levitical priesthood. Those who would serve as high priests would be descendants from Aaron. The other Levites would serve in the temple in uh, adjunct Uh, roles and to uh, serve in the temple but the high priest would always come in the direct line of descent from uh, from Aaron and so the Jewish priesthood was a temporary priesthood the priests were fallen they were sinners they had to not only offer sacrifices for themselves uh, I mean not only offer sacrifices for the people but they had to offer sacrifices for themselves it was not a permanent fix to the sin problem, but it was designed to teach about what needed to happen in order to solve the sin problem. It was a picture of of death and that the penalty for sin was death back in Genesis 2-7, but God would provide a perfect solution. And so we studied in the Mosaic Law the fact that just about anything you did would cause you to be ceremonially unclean, which meant that you couldn't come into the presence of God. And before Uh, fellowship could be restored there would have to be some sort of offering, sacrifice various different kinds of offerings were prescribed but usually and ultimately it was a blood sacrifice the blood of a lamb that would was the ceremonial uh, element that secured that cleansing and that was a picture of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world so The writer of Hebrews is addressing a Jewish audience, and he goes through uh, in chapter 7, in the latter part of chapter 7, he's addressing the reason there has to be this shift to a new kind of priesthood. The Old Covenant, which is what we'll get into a little bit in the next chapter, was Temporary, It was only designed to function for a short period of time until a permanent solution would come into place. And that permanent solution came into place when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And there he made a sacrifice for our sins. And his death actually establishes the basis for the new covenant. The new covenant is the subject of chapter 8. So here in chapter 7, it focuses on what he has done as a high priest. And in verse 7 we read, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. This is a fantastic truth that very few Christians down through history have understood, especially if you go back and have any understanding of the early church. And by the early church, I also include the medieval church from approximately 100 A.D. with the death of the last apostle up through 15, actually it was in the 1520s, just uh, at the early stage of the Reformation, no one really understands that they have a secure salvation. They think that they they got confused thinking, muddied thinking. Every now and then there's a light that seems to understand a few things, but for the most part... There's this thinking in the early church that baptism literally washed away sins, not that it wasn't just a symbolic event. And so people are terribly concerned about what happens to them after they are saved if they commit sin. This is one reason, if you read any of this stuff in the Da Vinci Code, that um, uh, Constantine, who was the emperor who legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire, Constantine wouldn't get baptized until he was almost dead because he was so afraid that if he got baptized and committed some terrible sin that he would lose his salvation. And so he wanted to wait to the last possible minute. And that was not uncommon in the early church for people to do that because in Christianity, sadly, people haven't understood the complete and total work of Christ on the cross. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross that period of time between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when it was dark on the face of the earth, and he cries out to God uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani he's crying to the Father but he calls him God which indicates that there's a separation a distinction, there's not that intimacy between him and the Father why? Because at that point in time, the sins of the world are being imputed to him and he is being judged for our sins, and as Paul put it In in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, so that there is this transfer onto him of our sin, so that he takes the penalty upon himself. And this is what establishes the basis for salvation. So all sin's paid for. There's no sin that you can commit today that wasn't paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. God the Father as the absolute and eternal judge of the universe, is omniscient. He knows every single sin that every single person can commit and will commit in history. He knows every sin you're going to commit the rest of your life. He knows every sin you have committed. There's no secret sins. And he took every single sin in human history and imputed that to Jesus Christ so that it was actually and truly paid for on the cross. Because God's, God the Father's knowledge is not incomplete, You can't have an incomplete payment for sin. There's no surprises. You can't go out tomorrow and commit a sin and God goes, oops, I forgot about that one. That's too big for uh, my grace. See, there's no sin that's too big for the grace of God. There's no sin that you can commit that is unknown by the omniscience of God and no sin that you can commit that is more powerful or that can overpower the omnipotence of God. God provided a perfect solution. So when he sends his son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross and die for our sins, then he is able to save us to the uttermost. Those who come to God, and again and again we see this phraseology, those who come to God... Uh, through him, coming to God through him is a synonym in the scriptures. In many places, Jesus goes back and forth with this verbiage where he says, those who come to me, those who believe in me, these are synonyms. So coming to Christ is synonymous with believing on him. That is how we come to him is by believing that he died on the cross for our sins, not by inviting Jesus into our life, not by walking an aisle or these other sort of a cultural symptoms that uh, are results even that people emphasize in a lot of churches today because they just don't look at what the scripture says the scriptures are so very plain that he who believes in him has eternal life the operative verb again and again and again in john is believe believe in him so he is able to save us because of who he is. And so in the last few weeks, we've gone through the whole doctrine of eternal security. And we started off looking at what the doctrine meant, that it is just briefly defined. It's the work of God toward the believer at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, which guarantees that God's free gift of salvation is eternal and cannot be lost, terminated, abrogated, nullified, or reversed, by any thought, act, or deed that you can commit. So you will be saved if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. The instant you trust in him, a number of things happen that secure that salvation for you. Now, we went on in the last couple of weeks and we talked about the character of God and how the character of God secures that salvation for us, that he is uh, able to secure that salvation for us. And then we looked at the work of of Jesus Christ, and that in his work he has not only promised that he 's the one who can save us but he has the power to keep us and you have the uh, uh, passage in uh, <clears throat> in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking about the fact that when we are in the father 's hands, that nothing can be lost in john six thirty seven through forty that everyone that comes to Jesus. Uh, Jesus will not lose, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. Uh, John 10:28. I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is powerful enough to keep us. The Father's powerful enough to keep us. So we've gone through the role of the Father, the role of the Son, the prayer of the Son last time, which is what intersects with this particular verse. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives. The focus here is on his post-resurrection eternal life. After the resurrection, he spent 40 days uh, with his disciples, and then on the day of Pentecost, or just before the day of Pentecost, actually, he ascended to heaven about 10 days before the day of Pentecost and then sent the Holy Spirit to the church on the day of Pentecost. And so in his present position, having ascended to the Father at the Father's right hand, he continuously makes intercession for us. Now that brings us to the third member of the Trinity, which is God the Holy Spirit, and that takes us to a couple of key things that the Holy Spirit does for us at the instant of salvation. Now we all know that God does about 40 things for us at the instant of salvation. He's redeemed us. He has imputed righteousness to us. He's justified us. He has brought us into the body of Christ. There's a variety of ministries of the Holy Spirit that are accomplished at the instant of salvation. And these are all irreversible. And I pointed out last time that one of the uh, weaknesses in a rather anemic uh, view of salvation is what happens when people think they can lose their salvation because they don't understand all that God did to save you. That whole process of being converted uh, from being uh, unsaved, being an unbeliever, being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive is a is an extensive process that isn't just saying, okay, now you're going to get to go to heaven when you die. There is much more involved in it than that, and we'll look at it a little bit tonight. Ephesians 1.13 is one of the key passages on the sealing of the Spirit. Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 1.13, we read, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So let's look at a couple of things there just to uh, pick up the significance of what he's saying. Paul, this is all part of that introduction that Paul has. It's a very lengthy sentence from verse 3 down to verse 14. And now he's talking about the significance of having trusted in Christ. Verse 12 picks up a little bit of the context that we who first trusted in Christ, there we have The key to salvation, trusting in Christ. I say trust in Christ and go to church, trust in Christ and get baptized, trust in Christ and do works. He'll contradict that in the second chapter, that there's faith and works don't go together at all. He says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. It picks up the verb from the previous sentence. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. It's an adverbial participle of time there, so you could translate it when you heard or after you heard. The idea is first you have to hear, then you believe. Faith is based on content. You have to understand the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 10, first you have to hear the message. And then you believe the message. So in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So once again, we have an emphasis here on the exclusivity of the Christian message. This is not something that you should ever feel like you have to apologize for. We live in an era today when when you're considered to be uh, some sort of uh, enemy of, the, of society if you believe that you have a handle on truth and that you know what absolute truth is. And if you think you know what absolute truth is, you can only know it if you base it on the Word of God. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And so when he said, I am the truth, he is claiming this position of exclusivity—that there is only one truth. There's not something that's true for for the Russians, and something that's true for the uh, Arabs, and something that's true for the Muslims, and something else that's true for the Buddhists. And we all worship the same God because we don't. There are uh, there are too many differences, and these are categorical differences. The God that uh, is, uh, that Muslims worship. Is a solitary God. He is not a Trinitarian God. He is a solitary God. And so, therefore, even though they claim that he uh, is loving, and the word love is never ascribed to Allah in the Quran, but they claim that, but he can't be truly a loving God. Because uh, if he is eternal and he is alone, then he can't be loving because he doesn't have an object for his love. He has to wait through eternity until he gets some creature that he can love. So uh, if he's God, he can't be loving. If he's loving, then he's dependent on his creatures in order to have an object for his love. So this solitary God of, of Islam just doesn't work. That's why the Trinitarian God of the Bible works. It fits the message that God is love. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father. This is an eternal society. But there's no society in the Godhead of Islam, which is why the mirror image in their religion often gets messed up because they don't have an, an ultimate reality that has a perfect society, so they never quite get it right in, uh, in creation. The other problem with the God of Islam is that he hates the Jews. The God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Allah of Islam is the God of Abraham and Ishmael. Those are two different gods. The way to get into heaven, if you are a Muslim, is either through jihad, which is an act of violence in support of Islam, which will guarantee that you immediately go into paradise but and other than that, you have to go through various uh, works, and ultimately you never know because it's up to the whimsical, arbitrary will of Allah law as to whether or not you actually make it into heaven. In contrast to that, the Bible says that God uh, demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there is a salvation that solves the problem, and the problem is sin, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross. So we have a message of absolute truth, one that is exclusive. And it's exclusive in that those who don't believe it are excluded. But everybody has the opportunity to believe because God gives a nonverbal witness in the creation. Gives a nonverbal witness so that the heavens, as the psalmist said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. So anyone can observe creation and recognize that there must be a God, and if they desire to know God, and God being omniscient, knows uh, the innermost thoughts of the heart, then God will make himself known to them, and then it, and, and no matter where they are on the planet, God ultimately gets the gospel to people and it 's amazing the things you tend to uncover here or there that 's just not generally known about how many. Uh, people, how many Christians, how many of the early disciples made it to India and then their disciples made it to China and others went to Africa. And I believe that if we knew all the facts, we would realize that probably within 50 years of the death of Christ, the gospel had circumnavigated the planet. Because there's little evidence you hear. Here and there around the world, you run into stuff that indicates that, that Christians took a message there way back in the 2nd century the 3rd century, and nobody knew about it until some, some recent discovery. So we have a message of truth. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, gospel means good news. It is the good news that rather than being dead in your trespasses and sins, you have eternal life. And this eternal life is not based on who you are, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. So in him you... You also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, that is in Jesus Christ, that position in Christ. Hold on to that thought because that's where we're headed before we finish tonight. In him also, having believed, an aorist participle, which takes the action into the past, having already believed, you were, aorist tense, uh, in the aorist tense verb and in the Greek grammar that is referring to the fact that when they believed, they were sealed. The believing was in the past and the sealing took place at the time that they that they believed. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now the Greek word for sealing, which is the verb here, is the Greek word spragizo. And spragizo has the has the meaning of taking originally of taking a, a signet ring perhaps or some sort of emblem, and you would melt wax on a document, and then you would put an impression on that document, and it was like a signature. It was done to authenticate legal documents. So sealing was a an object that it's like um, going to a notary today. It's something that was uh, made a document official. It was a sign of ownership. It was a sign that um, something was secure and that it showed legal legal ownership. Seals were widely used very early after the time of the Noahic Flood. We have evidence going back to uh, early Mesopotamian civilizations in Sumer, And in Babylon, we have, uh, discovered these cylinder seals that are just about this big and they're about as big around as your finger. And this is what they would use to seal a document. Uh, seals were used and showed up in different forms in different cultures, whether you're talking about Egypt or hit, uh, the Hittite Empire. But this is, um, it was something that was uh, passed down from Culture to culture, civilization to civilization. It was the idea that somebody would mark his possessions, and it was a sign of ownership. Now, if you're a Texan, that means branding. That's the best analogy, is that you get branded by the Holy Spirit. I always like that that analogy, because back in the Old West, when you would have uh, rustlers who would go out, and they would uh, steal a bunch of cattle, and then they would sit out, and they would take a, a cinch ring off of a saddle, and they would use that with a pair of pliers. They'd heat that up in, the, uh, in, a, in a fire, and then they would use that to change the brand. And if they were a good uh, branding artist, then a uh, good censuring artist, then they could change the brand. And if you looked at it from the outside, you would never know that the brand had been changed. And see, this is what happens with a a lot of Christians. They trust Christ as their Savior. They get sealed by the Spirit. They are now branded or owned by God as a member of the family, and he has put his uh, seal on them. They've been branded, but what happens due to their negative volition, their rejection of truth. They become distracted by the cares of the world and the details of life, and they no longer care about the fact that they are a child of God and supposed to live for Him in this world. And so what happens is they start living just like everybody else. They become what the Bible calls a worldly Christian. They're also a carnal Christian. They're living on their sin nature, and they don't look any different from all those unbelievers who are still under the domain of Satan, the Bible says the only way you're going to know the difference is the same way you knew the difference back in the old west you'd have to kill the cow or the steer and then you'd have to skin it and turn the hide inside out and you could always see who what the original brand was once you turned it inside out so there's a lot of people who are christians they trust christ as their savior they get sealed by the spirit then they uh, get distracted and forget about their spiritual identity get off track, live in a way that's no different from any unbeliever, and nobody can tell the difference between them and an unbeliever. And the last thing you would think is that that person is going to go to heaven. You look at their life and they just look as bad as anybody else. But when they die, the true brand will be revealed and it will be clear that they were sealed by the Spirit and that cannot be lost. So this idea of marking Tattooing was another way they did it in the ancient world. uh, Tattooing, but it was an idea that the owner would guarantee, an individual would guarantee his ownership or guarantee his signature by this legal act. It was often applied to wills. It was applied to deeds of sale. It was applied when there was any kind of uh, finance involved or any contract was entered into, there was always a ceiling. So, of course, when... A person gets saved in the church age, that's an application of the new covenant, as we'll see when we get into it next time. And so with the application of that covenant, there is a seal that goes with it that guarantees it. So spragizo is that act of physical sealing and guaranteeing that the individual is indeed a child of God. So sealing is a legal concept which references a person's seal or signature guarantee of a contract or a treaty. Once again, it takes us back to something I emphasize over and over again, is that God is a God of law. Now, what I mean by that is not the Mosaic law but that he operates within a revealed legal framework so that when you go from Genesis to Revelation, God always reveals his will. He always reveals what the stipulations are, and he limits himself in human relationships to these contracts, and the Bible calls them covenants, but it's the same idea as a contract. And as man understands those various contracts down through history, the original creation covenant, then the Adamic covenant, then the, or the Edenic covenant, uh, excuse me, the Adamic covenant, and then the um, uh, Noahic covenant, and then the Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant, all these are the basic covenants we've studied in the past. This tells us how God deals with people at different times in history. In the New Testament, the concept of sealing is applied to the ministry of the Holy Spirit when a person is saved. This is one of the 40 things that happens to every person at the instant of salvation. It's non-experiential. You didn't know you got branded when you trusted in Christ, but you did. And you only learn about it afterward when you read read the scripture. So sealing is the guarantee of eternal salvation. It is a grace gift to us to teach us and help us understand that we don't have to worry about sin after salvation. Sin was paid for. We're saved. Christ paid the penalty. It's his righteousness that's the basis of salvation, not our righteousness. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Paul said it in Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So sealing is the guarantee of our salvation, that no matter what we do, it can't reverse the brand. It is ours until the Lord takes us home. Now, this isn't just mentioned in one verse. This is mentioned again. uh, Paul wants to remind the Ephesians before he finishes with him of this principle again, so just turn over two or three pages to Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30, he gives them a command not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, the reminder is that this is one of those great things God did for you when you got saved. He, he, he gave you eternal life. He adopted you into the royal family. He blesses you with all the spiritual blessings and the heavenlies, Paul had said in Ephesians 1.3, and now he has sealed you. But whenever you sin as a believer, you grieve the Holy Spirit. And grieving the Holy Spirit in context is related to when, when we sin. It's just like when you were a child and you would do something that uh, dis, disobeyed your parents, violated uh, their standards in one way or another, and they would be grieved and they would be disappointed. You weren't out of the family but you knew that you had done something that interfered with that relationship that you had with your parents. And so there would have to be something that would have to happen in order to uh, get past that. And for the believer, that's what we mentioned earlier. 1 John one nine: if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So... Paul reminds them of the sealing of the Spirit because that's a permanent thing. It goes along with the indwelling of the Spirit. It goes along with the uh, the, the presence of the Spirit in our lives, where we're made a temple for the for the uh, indwelling of Jesus Christ. And because we have that permanent relationship with the Spirit and all these ministries of the Spirit, that we should not grieve the holy Spirit but when we do sin we should we should recover another passage that also mentions uh, the sealing of the spirit is found in uh, first our second corinthians uh, one twenty two these are the three key passages that deal with the uh, sealing of the spirit then we come to another passage another doctrine that is very important to understand because it also relates to our eternal security we find this in 1 Corinthians 12:13 this is called the baptism of the holy spirit now, people get all confused about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you go to a charismatic church, they will ask you if you've ever uh, been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Have you spoken in tongues? That would be a Pentecostal charismatic church. And they misunderstand what it is. They want to make the filling of the Spirit a um, experiential thing. But it is not experiential. It is an identification. That's the essence of the word Baptism. People get all confused about baptism. Every time you hear the word baptism, or in some churches you hear the word baptism, they immediately want to take you out and get you baptized in the local river swimming pool, baptistry, whatever. But there are, as we've studied in the past, eight different baptisms in the Scripture. And there are some baptisms that are dry and some baptisms that are wet. And believer's baptism, that is your personal testimony of what has already happened in the spiritual realm when you put your faith alone in Christ alone, is a wet baptism. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a dry baptism because it has to do with our uh, union with Christ. The essence of the meaning of the word baptize is to dip or plunge or immerse. That's its literal meaning but it came to signify it came to signify an initiation into something where something was identified in a new way with something else so a good word to use uh, just to substitute with baptism to get a sense of what it's talking about is the word identification and in our passage in 1 Corinthians 12:13 we read that we are By one spirit, we were all baptized or we were all identified into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And the focus in 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about the unity of the body of Christ. But the focus is understanding what that that identification did. It identified us and placed us into one body and it happens at the instant of salvation for every believer. Just like you, the fact that you didn't know you got branded when you got saved, you also got baptized by the Holy Spirit. The instant you got saved, it's non-experiential and it's not until you come back and read the Bible that you begin to understand what this means. Now, not only have we got the confusion that's come about because of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, because of their a failure to understand that there's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But there have been others who are not charismatic, who have not necessarily picked up on some of the uh, nuances of the Greek here. And these are are good men. I'm not saying... I I discovered this as a result of one of my teachers in seminary. And uh, once somebody shows it to you, it's sort of like, well, it's just so obvious but part of the problem is so many, so many people just study the Bible in English. And in the King James Version, which, of course, was the dominant translation up until the late 60s, the phrase that you find in the Greek, which is this phrase that I've got in English here, in numity the Greek preposition is in, the dative of the word pneuma for spirit is numity. That phrase, numity is found in every single passage that talks about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it occurs in almost every passage that talks about baptism. You are always baptized by means of something, whatever it is. If you were a Greek hoplite back in the days of uh, classical Greek and you, went, you were in the uh, uh, army of Sparta and you went through basic training, when you got out of basic training, then to signify that you were now ready to go into combat and you were ready to get blooded, you would take your spear and you would dip it into a bucket of pig's blood. And so you were identifying your weapon with blood. And it indicated initiation that you've now graduated from boot camp and you're ready to uh, go be a soldier. And so there are different baptisms like that. And baptism was that that initiation rite. It's the same kind of thing that you have in the church age that when you first enter the body of Christ, you're initiated, there's a change that's taken place. Um, and this is baptism. It's done by means of something. It could be done by means of, of uh, blood, like when the uh, hoplites dip their spear into the blood, or it could be done by means of water, which is what John the Baptist did when he was out at the Jordan River. He was... Uh, proclaiming a message uh, to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. So the people had to become, if they repented and recognized that the works-oriented self-righteousness of Judaism at the time was inadequate and they had to revert and change back to a grace understanding of God's plan, if they understood that and were willing to to uh, effect that in their lives, then they indicated it. By being baptized by John. So it's an initiation into a new state. Now the phrase that we had back in Matthew uh, 3.11 is this phrase. John said, as for me, I baptize you with water. See, it's in Hudity. The in is the same preposition you have uh, with baptism. That's the parallel. I baptize you with water but for and and the state into which they're going into the new position is repentance. And then John said, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Now that's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He is the forerunner of the Messiah, and he's announcing that I have a mission here to prepare people, and my message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he comes, then he will have a different baptism. My baptism is a baptism by means of water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice it's that same phrase again, numity. Now, John baptized with with water was the instrument he used. Jesus, he says, is going to use another instrument that is the Holy Spirit. He also says that it's, this is something in the future. He will baptize you. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in about 30 A.D., this baptism by means of the Holy Spirit hadn't happened yet. It was still a future event. But who's the one who's going to perform that future baptism by means of the Holy Spirit? The question I'm asking is who's the subject of the verb baptize? He, Jesus Christ, is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Ennumity is not expressing the one who performs the action of the verb. It's expressing what the baptizer is using. Now, that's real important. We're going to get into a little technical grammar here in a minute to, show, to help solve a problem. Acts 1.5. Jesus is speaking. So we've gone through the three years of Jesus' public ministry on the earth. Jesus has been crucified on the cross. He's been in the grave three days, three nights. He's been raised from the grave. And now he is uh, about to ascend to heaven. He's giving his final instructions to the disciples in Acts 1 before he ascends to heaven. And he reminds them of what John said. He said, for John baptized. Now, let's go back to basic sixth grade grammar. Baptism here is an active voice verb. That means the subject performs the action. John is the one who's performing the action of baptism. So he says, John baptized with water in hoodity. There's our key phrase. I want you to keep noticing the, the pattern here. We have a template in all these baptism statements. There's somebody who's the subject of an active voice verb. The instrument that they use is expressed with an in-clause the new state is usually expressed in an ace clause. Sometimes it's not there, but it but that's if it's there, it's expressed with an ace clause. And and this is in almost every every instance. So John baptized you with water, but you will is that future tense or present tense? Well, I'm probably taking everybody back to basic grammar here. Future tense. See, it still hasn't happened yet. John said it was in the future when he was start, began this about 29 or 28, 30 A.D. Now Jesus in 33 is saying it's still future. He said you will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit in numity The Spirit is the means. Not many days from now. Now then we skip over to our passage that we began with. And we go back to that. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit... We were all baptized, past tense or future tense. It says past tense. Oh, it's happened now. When did it happen? It happened on the day of Pentecost when the disciples were going to the temple and the Holy Spirit came down upon them. That was the initial baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. From that point on, it happens every time somebody trusts in Christ as their Savior. But there's a difference here, and I want to see if you caught it. In 1 Corinthians 12 13 it says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And here the verb baptize is a passive voice verb. That means the subject receives the action. We being every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive the action of being baptized. Does it state here who performs the action? Actually, it doesn't. In English, in a passive voice construction, you express this, the the performer of the action with the preposition by, and this caused many people to think that by one spirit in First Corinthians twelve thirteen was a was one baptism, and in the old, in the Old King James in the gospel passages, it translated the same Greek phrase with the English phrase with the spirit. So they went ah. We got two different baptisms. We got one by the Spirit and one with the Spirit. Everybody gets the by the Spirit when they're saved and with the Spirit later on and then they'll start speaking in tongues. But they didn't look at the Greek. The Greek uses the same language all the way through. So now let's go back and pull pull all this together. In 1 Corinthians 10.2, we have a different baptism. This is uh, baptism with Moses. I'm going to this verse just to show you how the template works. All were baptized, all being the Jews, were baptized. They received the action of baptism into Moses. There's that ace preposition indicating the new state. They were being identified uh, with Moses. In the cloud and in the sea, by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. This cloud was the Shekinah glory that... Uh, During the day, it was a pillar of cloud, and at night, it was a pillar of fire. It was the Lord leading them through the wilderness and across and through the the, uh, Red Sea, and that's the reference to the sea. So when the Jews followed Moses across the Red Sea, Moses and I, Charles and Heston, followed him across the Red Sea, they were identifying with him and with his faith, and so that brought a unity to the uh, Jewish nation. Now, let me go back and just review this in terms of English. When we have a sentence that reads, John hit the ball with or by means of the bat, what we're saying is that uh, John is the subject, he performs the action of hitting, He hit the object is the ball, and the instrument is the bat. But if we switch it around to a passive verb, We'll say that the ball was hit by John, and the by in the by preposition in English indicates the one who performs the action. The ball was hit by John, and uh, uh, the, uh, or the ball was hit by John uh, with the bat. I need to get rid of that other ball there. With the bat or by the bat, so it can become a little confusing. Now in Greek, they make it real clear what the instrument is. The instrument is going to be expressed by the Greek preposition in over here. To express the, the uh, performer of the action of a passive construction, the Greek's going to use either the preposition who, power, dia. It's very clear. So the Greek just makes it very clear. Sometimes the Greek doesn't make it clear, trust me, but here it does. So what we have in all these passages is the same pattern that you have uh, with John's original statement. You have the one who performs the action of baptism, the instrument that's used, and the ultimate state. So that's compared to Jesus, who uses the Holy Spirit to enter us into a new state. It's not stated in Matthew 3.11. Jesus isn't stated in 1 uh, Corinthians... Or, or actually, the one who performs the action isn't stated in 1 Corinthians 10.2. The cloud, the water, the cloud and the sea is mentioned... Moses, the new state is mentioned. Now when we get to first Corinthians twelve thirteen, it doesn't tell us who performs the baptism, but who performs the baptism if you're consistent with everything John said. Jesus performs the baptism. He ident- He uses the Holy Spirit just as John used the water to uh, identify us with himself. So the Holy Spirit is analogous to water. It is a cleansing aspect of that that ministry so that the baptism by means of the spirit positionally cleanses us from all sin and that's and you can certainly see how this overlaps with and relates to the fact that we we receive the imputed righteousness of christ and the aspect of regeneration that we're made a new creature new creature in christ so what happens at the instant of salvation when you're trusting Christ as your Savior is that you get identified with Christ. Galatians three twenty-seven and 28 says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's that picture of imputed righteousness and cleansing that's ours. Titus 3, 5 says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So you have that same imagery that just it follows all of these uh, phrases through all the way through Scripture to help us understand the, the tremendous... Things, the, the dynamics of our salvation, making us a new creature in Christ. We've been identified with him. It's his righteousness. We're positionally cleansed. There's nothing we can do to lose that salvation. So we define the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit as the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration To identify the believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection. So that we enter into a new life. We become a new creature in Christ. We have new assets, new blessings, new uh, privileges, a new position because we are in Christ. Now, it's always been one of my favorite diagrams because it always made made good sense. And people it's amazing how many people never understand this principle, that when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about two different realities that are ours. And on the left side of the screen, we picture the eternal reality that is ours at the instant of salvation. When we trust in Christ as Savior, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit and we're placed in Christ, in the light. That's why it's a white circle against a dark background. And we are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, in terms of our temporal experience, we are filled by the Spirit. We, walk in, we begin walking by the Spirit, but we can still uh, sin. And when we sin, we are out of fellowship. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're no longer walking in the light. But we're still positionally clean. We're still positionally in Christ. But experientially, we're out of fellowship. We're in. Uh, the sin nature is in control and then when we confess our sin then we're back in fellowship and we're back under under the control of the Holy Spirit and the influence of the Holy Spirit as he uses his word in our life so this concludes our little study of uh, eternal security so let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25, he is able, why? Because there's this master plan of salvation that was set forth in eternity past and it handled every possibility, every exigency. There's nothing left out. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives because he's eternal and because he will live eternally, he will eternally secure our salvation. He always lives to make intercession for them. And then verse 26, 26 to 28 is going to summarize what we what he is doing. For such a high priest was fitting for us. And then it describes him. He is holy. That means hagias is the Greek word meaning set apart. He is set apart. He is distinct. He is unique. He is. Uh, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. That verse takes us back to the ascension. He is unique, he is distinct, he is separate from sinners, and he is at the Father's right hand. And this next qualification, just summarizing what we've studied so far, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices – Levitical priests needed to always have a sacrifice for themselves when they went to the temple. Not only did they have to offer a sacrifice for themselves, they had to get cleansed first, but then the the um, uh, anyone who came to worship God had to be cleansed. So they had an inadequate priesthood. But Christ is not. He does not need to offer up sacrifices first for his sin and then for the peoples. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And the key word there is that word for because that indicates substitution in the Greek. It indicates that he did it for or in place of the lost sinner. He did it once for all. It can't be repeated. He did it. It was a sufficient death. He paid the price for every sin. He did it once for all when he offered up himself. And then the conclusion in verse 28 for the law appoints, the law there being the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. The, those who entered the, the human priesthood under the Mosaic law were sinners. But the word of the oath, now what's the word of the oath? That's the word that we heard mentioned back in uh, verse 21, to quote from Psalm 110, verse 4 the lord has sworn he has made an oath and will not relent you being a reference to jesus christ you are a priest forever according to the order of melchizedek so there was a covenant that was the basis for the levitical priesthood but there is but that doesn't establish christ's priesthood that's established by a second act this legal oath remember i made the point that everything that god does is wrapped in this Uh, legality that becomes a pattern for human law and he established with the word of an oath Christ's priesthood but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been completed forever that takes us back to verse seven of chapter uh excuse me verse 10 of chapter 2 For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that is the plan of the Father, to make the captain of their salvation complete through suffering. So he is made complete through his life on the earth, therefore he can be our pioneer. He is the uh, forerunner, the pathfinder. He is the one who set the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age, and he did that. In his high priestly ministry. So now in the church age, every believer is a priest, so we are to follow his pattern. That takes us up to the end of, of chapter 7, and next time we'll start into chapter 8, where we start making the transition from his high priesthood. We're going to deal with, uh, again, there's an allusion to Psalm 110 and 8 1, there's uh, reference to the uh, session of Christ at the right hand of the Father and what he is doing. And we get in, it's a short chapter, uh, 13 verses, and it focuses on the new covenant. So we get into this whole thing about the significance of the new covenant. I've already been asked one question related to whether there was one new covenant or two new covenants. And you've probably heard both before, so we'll straighten that out. There's only one new covenant. And that's with, uh between that... God in the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to understand these things, and to realize that you had us in mind in eternity past, and you planned a perfect salvation for us to deal with the sin problem, that the problem of sin and evil and suffering is all dealt with on the cross, and that by putting our faith in Christ, we have eternal life, and that eventually he will return and when he returns, we have what the scriptures call the ultimate redemption, as there will be final judgment and the final uh, application of his death in terms of, of punishment and reward. And the issue then, of course, is trust in Christ, and that alone brings salvation. pray that you will bring to mind the things that we studied tonight, and we might be encouraged and strengthened by them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.